Thank you, Mike, for that message through song. We are going to continue in our study of the, Paul's letter to Titus today. And we're going to be reading Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 9, and we're going to read through to verse 11. So this is Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 9, reading 2 to verse 11. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The word of God says this, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Please be seated. As we have mentioned multiple times in the service already, we have just returned back from Camp Schaefer with our youth camp. And and one of the, 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 the main theme of youth camp was called to be. And we left it kind of open ended there at the end because there's a lot of things that we as Christians are called to be. And so we we talked about different things that the, the Bible calls us to be doing, like verbs, things to, that we should do. But we also talked a lot about what, what, who we are called to be, what we are called to be in the sense of we are called to be a ambassador. We are called to be a lot of things. And one of those studies took us into the gospel of John and talked about how we are called to be a branch. And we looked at the passage where Jesus said that, that I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser and that you are the branches. And we got to talking about what branches do and what their purpose is. And, and, and the main purpose of any sort of vine and branch, we talked specifically about the grape and the grape vine and the grape branch. And the main purpose of that, that branch is to bear fruit. And a lot of times when we think about bearing fruit, that can be kind of in the church world, kind of an ambiguous statement. We say these things a lot, but we don't know what these things mean. And so I might tell you to bear fruit and, and you might take that to mean one of several things that maybe bearing fruit means that you get a lot of people that, that, that gather around you and follow you. Some of you may say bearing fruit is, is just doing work and doing things and being able to say that you've accomplished all of these things either for your own personal holiness or for the church. Some of you might talk about bearing fruit in the idea of of um, of doing good deeds and, and being able to show all of these good deeds and nice things and righteous things that you have done. And in a sense, all of those things are bearing fruit. But as I was looking at our passage, and maybe because we had been studying it at camp, or maybe because of just how God was speaking to me, as I was reading Titus chapter 3, I realized... That Paul, as he is talking both in the beginning of our passage, as well as in the passage that we have read today, that he is talking about fruit. What is the fruit of following Jesus? What is the fruit of the true, real gospel? Or, by contrast, as we see in our passage today, what is the fruit of a false gospel? See, as we look at our passage today, we begin to realize that this word that starts all of it off today in verse 9, this but, 
means that we are getting a continuation or more accurately, a comparison of the verses that we've read before. So everything that we've read really in all of chapter three up to this point is the contrast to what we are about to read. We have everything in verses one through eight. And then he says, but and begins to talk about something very different. And so the contrast that we see in our passage today is the contrast between the real gospel, the true gospel, the gospel that Paul had delivered to Titus and that people had delivered to Crete. And now Titus was there to solidify and sure up by establishing the church. But then there was this other gospel, this false gospel that had begun to become apparent with in the church of Crete and was becoming a problem. And make no mistake, both of these gospels were bearing fruit. And Paul had to identify it. Just as Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 44, each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from briar bushes. And when we fast forward to the church today, we need to begin to ask our question, ask the question, what fruit are we bearing? Are we bearing the fruit of the real, true gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are we bearing some other kind of fruit? Because a false gospel has either entered into our church or entered into our hearts. Let me show you as we look into the text. First off, we will, we will notice that the true gospel builds up. That the true gospel edifies, but a false gospel divides. Begin looking at verse nine and we see these words. It says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Again, this is likely a reference to stuff we've already addressed in Titus chapter one. There were false teachers on the island of Crete that were called Judaizers, and they were trying to tell the, the new believers, these Gentile new believers of Crete, that, that it was great that they had Jesus, but now that they had Jesus, they needed to keep the law as well. And so they needed to wear the right clothes and go through the right rituals and, and, and observe the Sabbath and, and eat the right food. And they were saying, like, you, it's good that you have Jesus, but now you need to be Jewish as well if you really want to be saved. Notice the results of the teaching that we see in verse 9. This teaching and these things that they were talking about, these foolish controversies and genealogies and conversations about the law were leading to nothing but strife and disputes. It was creating problems within the church. Their teachings were divisive and not in any good possible way. The church in Crete was likely splitting over these controversial, controversial ideas and these conversations with some siding with these teachers while others were siding with Paul and Titus. Now, make no mistake, divisions happen within the church. Paul even goes in the in uh, first Corinthians to say some division is a good thing because it allows for the truth to finally come out. If we get on the wrong path, if we get confused about what the Bible says and we begin to disagree, it is a call for us to dive deep into the word, to seek out people that have understanding and knowledge so that when divisions arise, we might ultimately find the truth and then Lord willing, all of us be reconciled behind that truth. However, that is not what is happening in the church in Crete. On the controversy, these people are looking for a fight. 
Have you ever met somebody who just loved arguing? If you have social media, you could probably safely raise your hand. I have heard a very old saying that arguing with people, arguing with some people is like wrestling a pig in the mud. You can only do it so long before you realize that they like it. And I can, and I tell I will tell you flat out, I don't get into arguments on Facebook or on, I'm not on anything else, but on anything else anymore. And there is a reason for that is that is it is a waste of my time. And you guys know I have opinions. Some of you know I have too many opinions. But I have learned that putting my opinions on Facebook is not helpful. It is not edifying. So if you or someone else in the world decides to put the stupidest, most ignorant thing on Facebook, as much as I will look at that and tut tut and roll my eyes and maybe complain to my wife about it, who is not in the room right now, I am not going to comment on your Facebook post. Because I know what it means to spin tires in the mud and I choose not to do it. However, these people love it. They thrived on it and they took every opportunity to go into their Bible studies and into their church gatherings for the sole purpose of creating division and hostility and arguments and would love to argue over what he says himself or Foolish controversies and genealogies that amount to nothing. We're called to be better than that. In fact, if we go back in the text and we go to the beginning, look at verse 2 and he says this. He, he calls the church to malign no one, but to be peaceable, gentle, and showing every consideration for all men. So instead of being this peaceable, gentle person, peaceable, gentle person that is thinking about the other person, thinking about their feelings, their thoughts, trying to understand why they believe what they believe and maybe why they might feel passionately about it. They choose rather to be argumentative, to create strife and, and uh, disputes, to stir up hostility and to make comments for the sole purpose of creating division. They would rather look smart or profound than loving or peaceable. And brothers and sisters, it ought not be that way with the church. Unity is important to the church. Unity was something that God cared about deeply. And unity was something that, that Jesus spoke of passionately before he went to the cross. This is not to say that we should be compromising in the things that we ought not compromise about. When we are talking about salvation by grace through faith or the infallibility and the authority of the word of God, these things we must hold true to and cannot bend towards regardless of the culture. However, fighting just for the sake of fighting and looking for reasons to be divided and strifeful and divisive is not what God intended for us. Jesus said this in John chapter 17, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of his disciples, but for also those who believe in me through the word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, and are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I will tell you 
And I, I, from experience, that there is nothing more heartbreaking than for me to get news about strife and division in some of our local churches. I often joke that if you want to know what's really going on in a church, go talk to one of our funeral homes. Because they know. Because they work with all of us and they know kind of what's going on and they hear us pastors talk. And I can tell you that on more than one occasion, I have been talking with some of my friends that, that work in some of the funeral homes in this area, and they'll say, well, no, that church is really struggling. Or we hear it through the grapevine in all these different ways, and, and I'm not a competitive guy when it comes to church. I don't believe for one millisecond that if the church down the road is, is having trouble and having problems, that that might be good for us. I don't think that way. And so if you come to me to talk bad about another pastor in our association, in our, in our area, you will see me shut that down very quickly. In fact, usually one of the first things I say, if you, if you start talking about a pastor in another church, especially in our station, I'll say, oh, I know them. They're a good friend of mine. And for the most part, that's true. Because there is no joy, there is no good thing that comes out of a church that is divided and, and, and rife with disputes and dissension and anger and hostility. And to be quite honest, more often than not, what that church is fighting about is things that don't amount to anything in the kingdom. Whether there is a guitar on stage or an organ being played did not matter to the kingdom. Whether the carpet is red or blue or some nice neutral color does not matter for the kingdom. Whether I am wearing a tie or Joe and I have hair does not matter for the kingdom. But there are things that do matter for the kingdom and those things we should make much of. And those should be the things that we are rallying behind, not for the purpose of division, but for the purpose of unity. And people should know the church, and when they know the church, they should say, this is a place where people from all walks of life, from all different types of backgrounds and races, from all different types of socioeconomic classes, come together and love each other and encourage each other and build each other up. There is enough division in the world, amen? Let the church be a place of unity even if you have to sacrifice your preferences on the altar of God. Number two, the true gospel leads to good works. The false gospel leads to worthlessness. A significant part of the beginning of our chapter, of chapter 3, is dedicated to the relationship between faith and good deeds. In fact, really, it comes off of what we read in chapter 2 and then goes on into chapter 3. There's actually a significant amount of this letter to Titus is about what should the church be doing and talking about good deeds. Titus 3.1 says this, it says, so be ready for every good deed. Titus 3.8 says, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But notice what the false teachers are said to be, how they are described. Again, going to back to verse 9. He says all about this genealogies and all that stuff. And he says, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, that they could mean a couple of things. That could mean the controversies and the genealogies. 
However, it could also mean the people themselves, regardless whether it be the fruit of these discussions or the people themselves, they are not only unprofitable, meaning not good, not edifying, they don't help anybody, but they are worthless. Now, that's a hard word. I don't think anybody here would ever in their life want to be called worthless. And everyone here would like to believe that we are made on purpose with a purpose. Amen. When we share the gospel with people, we remind them that God, that God made them on purpose with a purpose. And for that reason, he came to die for them. So then to be said that what you are doing and these people are, in fact, unprofitable and worthless is something that we should say, whoa. I think both the church and the world is often wondering what real Christianity looks like. What is what is the church supposed to actually be doing? We see what some churches are doing. We see what some churches are not doing. And I think even we sometimes when we come together and we get into the word, you know, we we know what we need to do and what we need to say to see a person come to know Christ. Right. We know that. Hopefully you've been paying attention to the screen these last three years. We know that once they come to know Christ, we know they need to get baptized and we know what that looks like. You know, you go in the water, you get dunked with Jason. I held him a little longer because, you know, he was fighting me. And we get that. But then what happens when this is over? What happens the next day or the next day or the next day? What happens when you have this profound moment at church camp and you're like, I want God to do his will with my life. And then you go home and you have to ask the question, OK, what does that look like? We ask that question. The world is looking at us and going, what do they do? I am convinced by even just by talking to people that even though we live here in the, you know, the buckle of the Bible Belt and we're here in beautiful Kentucky and there's like a church on every corner and I could probably throw a rock and hit a church no matter where I am in town. There are still hundreds, if not thousands of people who drive by churches every day of their life, having no idea why anybody would be a part of an organization like a church. What do they do? What are we supposed to be doing? I think Paul's answering that question in the midst of our text. He says real Christianity does what is good. That real Christianity serves other people. That real Christianity cares for people. Real Christianity shares good news with people, not just condemning them, but showing them and offering them the hope of the gospel. The real church engages the world around us with good things and shows them by how we do good to each other. That the real church does these things not because we hope that this good that we do will save us, but because we are saved and are grateful for the salvation that we've received. We could almost sum up all of it in what is the church supposed to be doing? What is real, true Christianity supposed to be doing? And the answer would be do good. Do what is right. Do what is good. And then we put that into the context that we live. You go to work. Do good at work. Work hard. Be trustworthy. Be honest. Be fair. With your family, do what is good. Love your wife. Honor your husband. 
Love your children, raise them up, see to it that everyone in your household is drawing closer to the Lord as far as it depends on you. And your clubs and organizations do good. Serve others with a cheerful heart, have the right attitude, make other people more important than yourself. Be diligent. When you interact with strangers, whether they are serving you at a restaurant or checking you out at the grocery store, do good. Be a ray of sunshine in what may be a otherwise uneventful day. Show them consideration and love. Be grateful for their service. Thank them profusely. Do the work that might make their job just a little easier. Brothers and sisters, we may all be called to slightly different things, but all of us are called to do good. Even to people who we may not think are worthy of it. By contrast, bad Christianity does nothing. It sits and it expects the world to come to them. It is lazy, self-seeking, self-serving and arrogant. It tells you that everything is all about you and that you are the center of the universe and you do not have to do anything for the world or for the kingdom. We need to be careful about bad Christianity. Bad Christianity sits you down and tells you how wonderful you are and how you never need to change and how God is so happy that you are just here and so you can just sit there and feel good about yourself and then go on your merry way. Bad Christianity tells you that you are better than everyone else and they are unworthy of your time or your words. Bad Christianity encourages you to do nothing for the kingdom of God. But rather that the kingdom of God is here for you. Paul calls these people that live this way and promote this idea as worthless because they invalidate the good news of the gospel and they destroy the witness of Christians who are trying to do good. I was reminded of the parable of the talents and and the rich rulers um, response to the one slave who did nothing with the talent that he had been given. Matthew 25, starting in verse 26, we read this. But his master answered him and said, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I've scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would receive my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more shall be given, but to the one and will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have even what he does shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness so that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice that line at the very end of that parable. He says, throw out the worthless slave. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a very serious gut check about what kind of Christianity we are following. If Paul tells us that those who who are in this false Christianity, this false teachings, this false gospel are people who are ultimately worthless 
And then in a parable of Jesus' own, uh, own words, he says that the one who did nothing is worthless and will be thrown out. We have to ask our, the, ourselves the question, what is our faith? Is our faith causing us to grow and leading us to obedience and causing us to further the kingdom? Or is our faith all about us leading us to sit on our behind and be worthless? One of those faiths will save you. One of those faiths has deceived you. Number three, the true gospel is gracious. The false gospel is condemning. As we've already mentioned, these false teachers, these Judaizers, were creating problems because of the Old Testament law. Going back to, to verse 9, it says that there was these disputes over the law. So ultimately, what they were doing was telling the Gentile believers of Crete that they were actually not saved yet. But that their salvation was not yet secure because they still had to follow the Jewish tradition. They couldn't, it wasn't enough that they had, had put their faith in Jesus, but they also had to put their hope and obedience to the Jewish law. They created fear among the Gentiles that Christ's sacrifice was not enough to save them so that they needed to make some sort of contribution to their own salvation. They were condemning these new believers wrongly, and in doing so, they were actually condemning themselves. Look again at verse 11. It says that these false te- the, the false gospel was actually condemning them, not just the, um, not just the Crete believers, that they were revealing that they had not placed their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. I want to read to you again verse 11. He says this, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. What is ironic about all that is happening here is that these people who are condemning the Creek believers as not being saved yet were revealing that, in fact, they had not been saved, that they had not placed their hope and trust in Jesus, that they had not been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but rather they were hoping to make some sort of contribution to their own salvation. They wanted to go before Jesus and say, Jesus, I believed you. And I did all of these great things to get into heaven. Guys, that's not what we are called to do. What's even scarier about that is they were doing exactly what the Pharisees have been accused of doing. Is they were go- wanted to go before God and say, God, look how much better I am than them. Look how much more obedient I was than them. Look how much more right I was than them. Look how many more arguments I won on Facebook compared to them. And the reality is, is God does not care about the them, but he cares about whether or not you have surrendered yourself completely to Jesus Christ. In fact, when we say that these people who are presenting this false gospel was self-condemned, it revealed that they were rejecting the very words of Jesus himself. Matthew 16 says this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This should be a strong warning to us that we do not put our faith in the flesh in any way, shape or form. But we trust completely in what God has done for us. 
It's tempting. It is very tempting for us to want to put some confidence in our flesh and our knowledge and our good deeds and our churchiness. Sometimes we even kind of want to rack up some credits with God so that hope so that maybe then after that we can kind of coast for a little while and cash out our chips slowly. And then when we kind of feel the, the, the pinch, well, then we'll start doing good things and rack up our chips for God again so that we can coast again. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were trusting in their work. But what God calls us to do is to trust in Him. To put our faith and our hope, to put everything in the hands of Jesus. Knowing that He saved us. So we've talked about good deeds. It's kind of an interesting tension here where we say that in one sense, when we are saved and when we give our life to Jesus, that that should bear fruit of doing good things. But on the flip side of that is we don't trust in those good deeds. We recognize that they are just the fruit of the reality that we've been saved. And we place our hope in nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. Last thing for this morning, the true gospel must be shared and the false gospel must be rejected. This is really probably the main point of the entire passage and maybe even the entire letter that Paul has written to Titus. He's doing so because he wants Titus to deal with the people and with the teachings that are existing there. These things that are that are corrupting and perverting the church and are offering a corrupted and perverted gospel. Notice Paul's counsel in verse 10. It says this. It says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. The word factious means divisive, one who who takes on and pulls people aside. He literally calls the herd and, and brings something to himself. I heard a story once about a church camp, since I've talked about that a few times today, about a church camp back in my home state. And one year, they had a new youth minister come to the camp to help and to serve. This youth minister decided that he could put on a better camp than the actual director at the time. And so he began to create his own faction within the camp and eventually told the directors that he would no longer be having his kids and his people participating in all the other activities of the camp, but rather he would take his people and do his own thing. He created division that ultimately rocked, it rocked and ravaged the camp. And needless to say, he was not invited back. By way of story, that same young man ultimately left his church and went to a church in Ohio and later accusations were made about his integrity. See, factions never glorify the body. And when we seek to kind of create our little people groups and our little our little cliques within the church, it ultimately does destruction. And Paul's counsel was this, remove them. Again, that word that we find in verse 10 is the word that leads the whole thing. And he says, reject them. This should be a reminder to us of the seriousness of this sin. The church should not entertain false teachings in any way, shape or form. I don't care how long you've known them. I don't care how nice they have been. I don't care how long they have stood behind the pulpit. If they teach 
and they preach what is false, they must be addressed. Believe it or not, verse 10 actually is a call back to Matthew 18. It might look harsher than that, but it's actually in line with it. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, says this. If your brother sins, go and show his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 10 statement to reject a man after one or two warnings is a is a is a uh, application of even this very thing. He says, Titus, go to these people teaching these divisive things and say what you're teaching is divisive. Let me show you it's wrong and repent. If they don't, then he says, OK, he's going to bring a couple other people. This is happening. This is what you're saying. These people agree with me. Here is where it says it in Scripture and in the words of Jesus. Repent and believe. And if they reject it again, go to the church and say these men are preaching false things that are contrary to the gospel and contrary to the will of God. And if they reject it even then, then they are to be rejected. The goal is not simply to do harm to people who are teaching false things. Notice they are given multiple occasions to see the truth and repent of it. But rather the purpose is to one, see them restored Notice again in what we see in Matthew 18, 15, when it says, if he listens, you have won your brother. That's the goal. But along with that goal is a desire to protect the church and to make sure that false teachings don't lead to false practices that lead to a false gospel that wins false converts that will still go to hell. We simply cannot entertain a person who is teaching or promoting a false gospel. We cannot ignore it. We cannot hope it will go away on its own. But we must lovingly and yet firmly reject it. Putting those people out even if needed. But the true gospel. The true gospel is something that must be embraced by all. The true gospel is something that must be shared. In fact, it is the, the duty and the obligation of every believer to share the good news of the gospel. Look again at verse 8 of Titus chapter 3. It says this, This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. All of verse 8 is about what has preceded that, what has been happening in verse 1 through 7. And he's saying, not only do I want you to stand firm in the truth of the gospel that we have been saved by grace through faith, but I want you to speak confidently of that very thing. We as a church are called to not only believe the gospel, but to share the gospel with everyone who will listen and really probably a few who won't. This begs the question for us today, what kind of church are we? And what kind of Christian are all of us individually? See, the tempting, the temptation of a passage like this is, is we always want to look at something like this and point it to the thems, right? Say, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm talking about false teachers and you're probably already thinking about prosperity gospel people, hateful fundamentalist people divisive, arguing, internet people. 
That crazy guy who went from, from atheist to Calvinist to Catholic to something else to now they're, they're burning incense to some false god. You want to think about the those out there. But what about the yous? What gospel are you following? Are you following a gospel that moves you to love and good works? Are you following a gospel where your hope is completely built on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is your, is your faith and your gospel about something that you need to share with the nation starting right here and going all the way to the ends of the earth? Or is your gospel self-seeking? Does your gospel love a good fight and a good argument? Does your gospel come with a big wooden spoon so you can stir the pot? See, one of those gospels gives us life. But the other one leaves us as dead as we were when we heard it the first time. Are we followers of Christ? Are we believers in the one true gospel does it move us to good works and to confident proclamation of the good news if not why not we like to present the gospel here a certain way and we do it a lot and the reason we do it a lot is because we want you to confidently share it and we have this little drawing that we're going to put up and hopefully they're recognizing by me waving my hand that I want it to go up there. Um, and it begins with God's design. We believe, as we've talked already today, that God has made you on purpose with a purpose. I love having TVs back, everybody. And we even talked about that today, that God has made us on purpose with a purpose so that the very reason when he says that these things are worthless, that's a powerful statement. Because God made you. And part of the gospel message is that God created all things and that includes you. And if we could do things right, we'd be good. But we don't. But almost without fail, we think, hey, I know God made it, has a design, but I, I think I'm going to make my own design. And so I'm going to leave God's design and I'm going to try to try to create my own design and my own purpose. And that's what sin is. Sin is doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. And we really don't care what God wants from us. We really don't, don't care what God's design is. And we have a lot of technology today. And one such technology is a thing called an iPad. And it's this little flat thing. And it, it's, it's really neat. And I heard a story not too long ago about a, a lady who got her, her dad, it was an older dad, um, an iPad for Christmas and he had, you know, thought they could use it to FaceTime and he could look things up on it. And one day she finally came to the house and she said, how do you like the new iPad? He goes, well, it works great. He was like, well, it really works great, but I'm not sure I'm using it the right way. And she goes, well, where is it? And he said, well, it's in the kitchen. She goes, well, why is it in the kitchen? She goes, well, I've been using it as a cutting board. That, that, guess what happened to that iPad? It broke. See, when we use things the way they're not intended to be used, they break. My son learned that a, a toy, a little superhero action figure, is not supposed to be used as a hand grenade. And so when he threw it up in the air as high as he could and as far as he could and it hit the hardwood floor, that, well, let's just say that, that all of its appendages went in different directions. In the same way, when we 
don't do what God designed us to do, we find ourselves in a place of brokenness. And brokenness is simple. I'll explain brokenness to you. Whoa. Oh, man, that was close. I about broke a guitar. Set that right over there. Too much stuff on this stage. I love it, but dang. See, brokenness is that feeling that we get when we realize we're not right. We all feel it. The Bible even says we all feel it. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means all of us have sinned and find ourselves in a place of brokenness. When we feel like we are not who we were made to be. When we feel like we are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. When we feel like we are in a room full of people and that we still feel alone and just a little off. That's brokenness. And you probably feel that from time to time. And that is just a small reminder from God that something in your life needs to change. And most of us try to deal with our brokenness in different ways. We try to stay busy hoping that our success and our, our distractions might keep us from feeling broken. We try to cover it up or numb it with drugs and alcohol or, or cover it up with money and activity. We try to pass our brokenness onto our children, hoping that maybe if they're not broken, then we won't be broken. But we learn that no matter how hard we try to escape brokenness on our own, we still find ourselves broken. And so we needed something outside of brokenness to deliver us from our brokenness. And that's what the gospel is. And the gospel that Paul is speaking so passionately about in the third chapter of Titus is the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, not to show us that we could do it, but rather because we couldn't. He lived a perfect life to die on the cross for our sins. And he rose from the grave three days later. And in doing all those things, he took our sin and our shame and our guilt he took all of that with him to the cross. And upon his resurrection, he gave to us freely new life in him. Now you may say, well, how do I receive this gift? Because like all gifts, you have to receive it. And the answer is you have to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Bible says it this way. It says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we see all of that in this idea of repenting and believe. First, we have to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. See, Paul didn't put any confidence in the law because he put his confidence in Jesus. Because he believed that Jesus was everything he said he was. That he was God in the flesh. That he did live a perfect life. That he did die on the cross for his sins. That he did rise from the grave and that he was still alive. And it was easy for Paul to believe that because he saw it face to face. Now, for us, we have what Paul saw face to face because he wrote it down for us. And he's calling us to believe all those things about Jesus and in believing that we might turn from our sin and make Jesus Christ our Lord and master. And that's what the word repent means. Notice how that arrow of sin is pointing one way and the arrow for repent is turning another. That's what it means to repent. It means turning away from where sin and where it leads us and turning to Jesus and where he will take us. And when we repent and believe in the gospel, that God will begin to help us recover and pursue his purpose for our life. And that's really what we've been talking about, isn't it? That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that the natural result of that is obedience. 
It is doing what God has called us to do. It's about making our way back to God's design. Now, we do that imperfectly. But we make sure our arrow is pointed in the right direction. As you look at a picture like this. And we got to look at this and this is what the gospel is. And this is the message that Paul wanted us to understand and wanted to make sure that this was the message and not something else out there. You have to ask yourself the question, where am I in this picture? I'll give you a clue. None of us are in the first circle. None of us have wholly lived God's design perfectly. And even as we come to know Christ, we still don't fully get back to God's design before he returns. So where are you? Some of you today may say, I still feel myself with that brokenness. That I know I've sinned and I know I've fallen short of God. That I feel what is wrong in my heart and in my mind. And I have yet to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've yet to believe on Jesus and to repent of my sin. And I know that I am still in that place of brokenness. And we call you today. What's stopping you? What is keeping you from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendering yourself to him as Lord of your life? It is our hope and our prayer that you will not leave here either rejecting the good news of the gospel or allowing it to be allowing it to be perverted by some false gospel out there that will not save you. So what will you do today? We're going to give you an opportunity to respond. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and King, we stand in awe of your goodness. God, we praise you for who you are. God, we praise you that we have the word of God so that we can look at its words and be able to distinguish between what is real and true, what the true gospel is and what is false and phony. God, I praise you that 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 even in these days where I know that, that Paul and Titus must have been frustrated by the controversy and and saddened by the division, Lord, that you were using that for your glory so that that a church in Kentucky thousands of years later would be able to open up the word and recognize what the true gospel is versus the false gospel. Lord, I believe with all my heart that there are people in this room who are either believing in a false gospel or believing in no gospel at all. And God, that they are desperately in need of your salvation. Lord, they have been trying to do it by works. They have been trying to be good enough or they were hoping that they would just end up somehow being okay. But God, that today they've recognized that they are broken. Lord, I pray that they would hear the good news. And Lord, I pray that they would recognize that they don't need to stay in this state of brokenness. But God, I pray that they might believe that Jesus is your son and that he died on the cross and that he rose from the grave and that he saved them from their sins and has given them new life in Christ. And Lord, I pray that they will believe that and that they will surrender themselves to Jesus as Lord. And God, I pray that you would deliver them and set them back on the path to recover and pursue your design for their life. Lord, I pray that you would protect all of us from false gospels out there and false beliefs that do not save and do not lead people to true salvation. God, may we trust in you 
And may our trust lead to lives lived for you. God, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.